And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. Uh, I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. Uh, listeners who've been tuned in since 6.30 this morning for Hong Kong Today and Money Talk will have heard our extensive coverage of the two biggest news events of the moment, that's the National People's Congress in Beijing and the banking troubles in the United States. Uh, we'll be returning to national affairs on this programme tomorrow morning, but for this morning... Our focus is local. We're talking about the agriculture industry and organic farming. While uh, Hong Kong remains heavily dependent on the mainland for imports of vegetables, there are calls for the territory to increase self-sufficiency with more homegrown produce. With the government placing an emphasis on sustainable farming and fishing, we'll be asking what needs to be done if the sector is to thrive through finance, land use, technological support. Would urban agriculture enhance our quality of life? After 9.45, we'll be looking at the reopening of the cruise terminal for international cruises after three years of the pandemic. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And joining us uh, now here in our studio at Broadcasting House, we have uh, Professor Jonathan Wong, who's head of the Department of Biology at Hong Kong Baptist University. Good morning to you, Professor Wong. Good morning to you. And we should have uh, several uh, other guests uh, on the phone, um, including... uh, Professor Lam Hon Ming, who's Professor of Life Sciences and Director of the Molecular Biotechnology Programme at the Chinese University. Uh, Dr. Uh, Daisy Tam, Associate Professor at the Baptist University with a special interest in food security. And also uh, Jessica Fong, CEO and Founder of uh, Common Farms. Uh, good morning to all our guests. Uh, perhaps, uh, uh, Professor Wong, if we can start with you first. Uh, yeah. Yesterday uh, was the uh, Organic Day um, yeah. held in, uh, at, uh, at Chater Road, Road, where yeah. members of the public could meet uh, uh, farmers and, and people in, in the fishing industry as well. Um, how did that go? It was a really great day, really sunny. A lot of people coming to the central near the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. So you can see that uh, a lot of people really love uh, farming in Hong Kong. They really support the farmers. And we got a total close to around 40,000 people in just around six to seven hours time. Mm. So, and then we got uh, 40 farmers and fish uh, farmer coming to the site and then sell their price produce and communicate with the local to let them know we are doing farming in Hong Kong. They're still mm. farming in Hong mm. Kong. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a fairly, re- relatively speaking, fairly low level, though, isn't it, uh, as, as an industry? I mean, we something like 1.7% of our yeah. vegetables are actually grown here. Or yeah. Most of the rest of it's imported, isn't it, from the, from the mainland? So, uh, but, but is there like a, an increasing interest among the public, do you think, in organic yeah. farming and homegrown produce? I think in the last 10, 20 years, I think the government also spent quite a bit of time in trying to boost the activity in Hong Kong. And a lot of local organizations, they do think that farming remains important for the sustainable development in Hong Kong, not just for food production. Is Is it partly an emotional thing? I don't exactly say that, but uh, emotion be part of it. 
without the emotion, you can't push the industry, is it? Right. So I, I do think that a lot of people still think that, oh, we have our own grown produce. In Hong Kong, in the past, we produce around 35 to 40% of our own produce. But more importantly, I do think that people, people love the environment and they do think that we need to eat local. And at the same time, we need to use agriculture as a buffering zone in Hong Kong. Especially in the new territories, are we talking land, or are we talking innovative ways of doing it in high-rise buildings? Uh, both, I think both. Farming is not just high-rise building, but high-rise building is one alternative nowadays, especially in crowded city like Hong Kong. But I do think that land is still the major one. So I would say that in Hong Kong, we still have uh, more than enough land for agriculture. If you look into the figures, we got around 4,500 hectares of land that devoted for agriculture. Mm. And then uh, currently only around 500 is really active. And you think there's a lot of competition for land in Hong Kong, especially yes, for housing? Yeah, exa exactly. Uh, I do think, Mike, you are correct. People will think that, oh, you take, uh, take away the land that is for building house for our next generation. I don't think exactly, because we got around 4,500 hectares, and then 500 is active. And then if we want to produce around 10% of our local own gold produce, it's around uh, 1,000 hectares of land only. That means there's still around 3,000 hectares of land if you just take 1,000. But I would say that from among these 3,000 hectares of land, uh, 1,200 hectares of land are the brown field. Anyway, they don't use for farming anymore. So that can devote for uh, housing development. So we need another maybe 1,000 hectares of land in order to fulfill the government long-term requirement. But we are building new uh, uh, reclamation from the sea. That is around 1,000 hectares of land also. So I would say that that's more than enough land. It's depending how we plan our land and destination of use of land. And prioritise. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, okay, let, uh, let's bring in uh, Professor Lam. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Um, so the, the government talks about uh, sustainable farming and fishing. Uh, in your view, I mean, what needs to be done to, to support and promote the agriculture industry? Okay, so I think uh, it's important to maintain... Uh, some degree of uh, agricultural industry in, in Hong Kong. Um, I have a different reason because I, I believe that um, the customer should be closer to the origin of the food production. So uh, food is not just coming from supermarket. It is the hard work of the farmers and it should be closer to us. But to maintain the momentum of um, agriculture in Hong Kong, I think first is to build local banding. Because with local branding, uh, Hong Kong citizens will support the, um, the meaning behind the food and the agricultural products. And they will support the farmers' activities and buy their products. It's very important. So as John even said, there are some lands uh, out there that potentially can be uh, reused for agriculture, although today most of them have been abandoned for agriculture. But the second thing is how to encourage the next generation to do farming because even though you have a lot of land who is going to do the farming right so what is the incentive for the younger generation to use a newer technology greener technology 
to produce enough products so that they become a decent carrier for them. I, I was, I Professor, yeah. that was going to be the focus of my question. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I have children of uh, working age. Um, I just don't see them, at the moment anyway, attracted to farming. How are you going to inspire the younger generation? Yeah, I guess uh, there are several things, right? So I think the first important thing is, is farming a sustainable career? Can it, can it be, uh, can they earn enough income to sustain their own living, right? So if you will, um, of course, I think organic farming is one way because it can draw the attention of the customer who care about the environment and the food safety and to support um, equality and then they try, they try to support organic farmers. But another possibility is uh, the urban farming initiative because uh, now we have a lot of uh, like hydroponics, aquaponics, uh, feedy, um, agriculture, and, and those can produce uh, high-end products. Some of them actually um, connected to restaurants. So the famous chef actually used the local produce to make uh, interesting dishes. I think they will give a way that the agricultural products no longer the lower-end product of the market, but they can increase their value as, as well increase the income of the youngsters. And if they have good ideas, putting those products um, into the market with a different value rather than just nutrition, but right. getting some social values, environmental values to, to it, I think there will be the possibility of uh, surviving and probably right. develop some degree of agriculture. There's yeah. an image problem a bit. I mean, the, people think of farming, they think of getting up very, very early and being out sort of in the mud uh, <laughs> under the hot sun. Uh, what, you're, you're, what you're saying is, that in fact, modern agriculture doesn't have to be like that. Yes, certainly. I mean, why, why, why should the farmer always work hard, uh, so hard to earn so little? It, it, it is not necessary to be the law, right? So technology change, are changing. There's a lot of new technology that can apply to ease the farmer from the hard work, and yet they can produce good products. So I, I believe that uh, the younger generation with the support of the government, and they can introduce new technology and new products, make it more efficient, and yet with a social value behind all these products. That's a, that's a way that they can develop a career or develop a kind of a agricultural industry in Hong Kong just and, and also uh, uh, radiate to the Greater Bay Area. Because if Hong Kong can demonstrate success, there's a lot of similar situation of the cities around Greater Bay Area, and Hong Kong actually export this experience to those areas and make it a bigger business around the region. Okay, uh, also with us is Dr. Daisy Tam, who's an associate professor at uh, Baptist U, who has a special interest in food security. Uh, Dr. Tam, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. So, so what do you think? I mean, how, how do we incentivize the, the younger generation to get into farming? I think there are so many possibilities. You know, um, you know um, the speaker before me has mentioned some excellent ones. I think it's, it's not necessarily true that there is um, a less interest in going into farming and agriculture. Uh, there is, of course, like the kind of traditional sort of perhaps previous generations, parenting would, 
use this as a threat to, to tell their children if they don't study hard, they might end up as farmers because precisely of this image of hard work, uh, difficult labor, um, and very little monetary return. But in addition to sort of this image change and um, using technology and integrating that into a better sort of, uh, uh, not a better sort, but it, in fact, it's a feasible livelihood, um, it's one way of, uh, it's absolutely the way of doing it. And I think there is, in fact, an increase in measure uh, farming. So there's actually more people that have been um, joining and participating uh, in workshops or taking small plots of land or growing their own little uh, urban roof uh, uh, farming. Um, the, the number of uh, amateur farmers is increasing. So what is the bottleneck right now is not having that link into making this amateur uh, uh, hobby into something that can sustain their livelihood. In addition, I do think that the food, if we put food at the heart of um, sustainable development for the city and for the people living in that city, it's absolutely essential. Food security refers to when all people at all times have physical and economical access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. For a very long time, people in Hong Kong sort of ignored this because they think Hong Kong is Asia's or, you know, the world's gourmet city, and food has never been a problem. But after these couple of years with disruptions brought about by the pandemic, we understand that our food system is vulnerable. 95% of the foods that we eat are imported and more so even in vegetables. So whenever anything happens, a food supply gets disrupted. There's literally no food on the shelves. So I think in addition to well-being, in addition to more ethical and sustainable and shorter supply chains with better ecological outcomes, we also need to think about this as a security issue. Right. Mm -hmm. Professor Wong, I swing back to you for a moment. Yep. Um, I remember almost 20 years ago going to open uh, a fish farm yep. in a high-rise industrial building. Yep. Um, and, but it doesn't seem to have developed in, as in a bigger percentage of GDP. I mean, I, I thought it was incredible when my staff said, I want you to come and see a fish farm <laughs> in a high-rise industrial building. I'm thinking, these guys have been smoking something illegal. Um, but when we got there, it was absolutely amazing. It was yep. fully um, self-sustaining. Tiny little fish yep. were captured in yep. pure waters somewhere off Indonesia yep. and then developed right away. And the, the order backlog was amazing. The hotels and the best restaurants were queuing uh, yep. to get these fish. Yep. So The reason why, they, yep. I think you need to go with Jim's introduction finance and land use. Land price too high. Even though inside an industrial building, you go, uh, you have your fees going over there, the, the cost too expensive first. And then uh, for the farmer, the land is not available in Hong Kong. So technology-wise, we are not the leading one in Hong Kong. Our country in China is all the high-tech. You don't need to demonstrate that. It's more important that how we can go together with China to work on the technology. I think the technology is already there. The most important thing is that how you get the finance and then how you get the land. And then I told you the root cause of the farmers in Hong Kong. Why you find the farmers still living in the 80s? Why are they using the 80s technology? 
They don't know? No, not exactly. I think most important is that the land has not been anything to up to, to them. So if they invest millions of dollars, in two years' time, maybe someone will come and say that the land not want to take the land back. All your investment go to the rubbish bin. So that is the key issue would cause in Hong Kong. So with the finance and the land use can make it clear, that means land use allocation in the coming decade is really important for Hong Kong, especially in the Lofton metropolis. Now they are doing the land planning. They should put farming as one of the sectors within the planning. If we can well plan these 1,000 hectares of land, then investment coming, and then they will invest in modern technology. They got all the sensor control and all this. Now the production per hectare will increase. And what just, just now Professor M said, will come in, in really truth in Hong Kong now. In the future, we are not just in, facing the XT technology. We are using the modern technology to, in our farming, boost the production and then can achieve a local good production. All right. Mm. Let me ask a wider question then. Um, we've been talking mostly about vegetables and fish. What about fruit? What about small animals? Any scope for that? Fruit. In fact, we got around 269 hectares of, uh, of, of orchard in Hong Kong. But most, uh, most of them are just not putting too much effort to further develop it. Because why? The same point. How can I invest a lot of money into here? And also for fruit, because they occupy big area of land. And then the profit margin will be low unless you've got a really special type of food. They can have a higher price in the market. So then you are good can for you it. Do, can you do some fruits indoors? I haven't heard about it. I don't know if I'm thinking about it because indoor for, for indoor hydroponic mostly is for salad vegetable. They right. can sell at really high price. But for food, going for long years. And they have a deep wood system. So in that case, indoor tree is a really, really difficult. Yeah. Okay. Okay. A message here from a listener, Bill, says uh, high-rise farms in the city would be a relief from high-rise shopping malls. Farms in the countryside would be a relief from uh, container parks and brown sites. Go farming. Um, Daisy Tam, uh, I'm not quite sure how it works here, but uh, in, in other places around the world, uh, farming tends to be a, a family business, doesn't it? Uh, like, uh, you know, the parents are farmers and then, the, and then the, 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 the kids, when they're older, take over running of the farm. Um, I mean, but, but I mean, we're talking about people maybe like starting off now and getting into farming. I mean, how do you actually get into it if, uh, you know, if you don't have that sort of family background in farming? Well, <laughs> I think getting into any career is, 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 I would say the same to any uh, young people, you know, it's not what your parents do. Of course, if you're asking about how does one begin to, to farm, um, I think it's not necessarily uh, learning from the previous generation either, because in the previous iteration or, or the imagination that we know of what farming looks like, it is very labor intensive because there's very little use of machinery. The plots are hard, um, the plots of land are small. Um, the, the technology and the knowledge that we have of agriculture has shifted, not all of it in Hong Kong, admittedly, because we have stopped investing in that. Although, um, Baptist University with uh, John, uh, Professor Wong, actually we do have uh, reintroduced 
some programs teaching uh, students about agriculture and farming. And I think there's more interest in this whole wider discourse of sustainability and food being at the crux of the intersection of this idea of what does it mean to live sustainably in the future. Um, I also think that it's not necessarily just an agricultural kind of study because um, as your other speakers have mentioned, you know, it's also about how to get that product into the market. So understanding how, uh, how the market works, what kind of local currency it has, how do we market it to people, how do we make people care more about the food that they put into their own bodies. These are all part of making um, agriculture a feasible uh, way for livelihood. And I, and, and I honestly think that we have quite a lot of it already in Hong Kong. All we need is to galvanize all these mm. separate um, initiatives and make that into something a little bit more uh, scalable. It's interesting that supermarket chains in Europe putting a lot more emphasis on uh, local production, that is mm. stuff, food that's grown close to that particular branch of the supermarket rather than sort of centralizing everything yeah. nationwide. Mm -hmm. uh, to follow this, yeah. I would say that that's really important point for Hong Kong. We should stress more on the local food because we can't compete with those coming from China. But for Hong Kong, I don't think we can produce 100% of our food. But what we are looking is only a 10% only. So that 10% will be a special niche market. Those people who love local organic, so they can buy at a high price. So that means the market price now is not too bad. For an organic vegetable per cattle is around $40. But those uh, conventional is around 10 to $15. So that means there's market there. But how can we boost up the production in Hong Kong? That is really important. Mm -hmm. Professor Lam? Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, yes. Uh, just talking about that boosting uh, local production. What what other ways do you think we could uh, employ to uh, to increase the proportion of uh, locally grown food? I think the first, the first is uh, I think I, I um, agree with uh, Professor Jonathan mm. Wong that local food. Right. So how do we do it? I think local branding is very important. Mm. I want to give you one example. Right? So uh, last year, um, Hong Kong uh, some farmers have tried to regrow some Hong Kong rice. The, the name is called Fa Yu Zai. So mm. this, this rice when come out, immediately uh, all are sold out to citizens because it carry a history of Hong Kong rice production. Mm. So similarly, um, I have went to uh, Qinlong. It's a place um, near the Daimo San, and they have a watercress that uh, people actually driving there to, to buy it because this is a local brand. So building up a care local brand with a historical value and also advocating for environmental friendly production and green and safe, I think that is the way that you can uh, have a high-end products for the citizens. So I guess with that, then associate this product with uh, outlet chains. So uh, some uh, supermarket actually buying organic vegetables from Hong Kong and there, as I said, there are restaurants that will collaborate with those farms to have the local vegetables to be become part of the important dishes. So I think those are the strategies that uh, we can help the products to go to the customer with a uh, decent price so to, right. to increase so, the income of farmers. So we're talking mm -hmm. high-end niche products that command a, a premium price, really? Yeah. Yes. 
Because if you are co- comparing just the volume and price, yeah, obviously we don't have that much land compared to say mainland China. So in mainland China, they can uh, export tons of vegetables to Hong Kong every day. But during this kind of uh, export, the transportation costs a lot of carbon dioxide emission. So a local production immediately can uh, harvest into this environmental value. So we save a lot of carbon dioxide mm-hmm. by reducing transportation. The customer will know about that. And if the product is from mainland China, yes, of course, this is a, like a, a big prime production. But if that is something coming from Hong Kong, that has a different, different value. And uh, for example, uh, uh, we have also mentioned the other salad um, vegetables. So those can be go to a high-end market. For example, the office people like to uh, have healthy food, fresh. Then those uh, hydroponic salad vegetables can sell at a good price. And people are still buying it because it is healthy, it is green. So I think there are ways that to increase the price of the local uh, products. And that is the way to sustain the industry in Hong Kong. Okay, all right. Well, stay with us. Uh, we've got to take a, a short break for a news summary and a couple of an- announcements. Uh, at this point, we have to say uh, thanks very much to uh, Dr. Daisy Tam, who is uh, just with us until 9.30, Associate Professor at the Baptist U, who has a special uh, interest in food security. We're also being joined uh, in a moment by Jessica Fong, CEO and founder of uh, Common Farms. Um, just before that, uh, let's have a quick uh, round-up of the news headlines. Here's a summary. The annual session of the National People's Congress wraps up today after unveiling the biggest government reshuffle in 10 years. Chief Executive John Lee is in the Capitol to attend the NPC closing ceremony and will stay for a week to promote the SER's agenda. The U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says she's been working with regulators all weekend on a response to the biggest American banking collapse for 15 years. She said it's important to ensure that the failure of Silicon Valley Bank doesn't spread, but ruled out a government bailout. And the Oscars are underway in Los Angeles with everything everywhere all at once leading the pack with 11 nominations, including one for Best Picture. One of the film's stars, Jamie Lee Curtis, has already won an award for Best Supporting Actress. We'll have more news for you at 10. Brain, heart, lungs, liver, stomach. There are two more major organs at the back. Kidneys are low-key by nature. One in 10 people suffer from kidney disease to varying degrees. Those with diabetes or high blood pressure or with family or past history of kidney disease are more at risk. It can be completely asymptomatic in the early stage. Regular checkups can help detect kidney disease early to avoid kidney failure. Let's care more about the kidneys for better kidney health. Cannabis is a dangerous drug. From February 1st, 2023, cannabidiol or CBD is also a dangerous drug under the law. It is illegal to possess or trade CBD products in Hong Kong without permission. Also, don't bring any CBD products into Hong Kong from abroad. Trafficking or sales of CBD products will be subject to a maximum fine of $5 million and life imprisonment. Visit the Narcotics Division's webpage on CBD for details. CBD, not for me. Let's stand firm. Knock drugs out. 
and welcome back to Back Chats with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And uh, this morning in our main topic, uh, we're talking about the local uh, agriculture industry and organic farming. Uh, we have with us Professor Jonathan Wong, who's head of the Department of Biology at uh, Hong Kong Baptist University. And also on the line, uh, Professor uh, Lam Honming, who's a professor of life sciences and director of the Molecular Biotechnology Program at the Chinese University. And also joining us now on the line, uh, Jessica Fong, CEO and founder of Common Farms. Um, uh, Jessica Fong, uh, good morning to you. Good morning. So th uh, thanks for joining us. So w w what's your sort of uh, experience in the, uh, in the farming sector and with uh, uh, organic farming and so on? Okay, uh, uh, Ms. Fong, uh, it's not a great connection, actually. Uh, we'll probably try and uh, see. We'll, we'll we'll see if we can um, get you back. Right. Um, in the meantime, a couple of messages from uh, listeners. This from uh, Jerry says, uh, "How about the availability of farmland? Will uh, agricultural park in the new territories affect the farm culture?" And David says, uh, um, if you want to boost local production, uh, stop destroying uh, existing farms in the new territories. Uh, uh, the uh, government and construction uh, are destructive of uh, farmland. Um, uh, Professor Wong, you were, yeah. you were saying before that um, you know, we need to find a balance between yeah. uh, with, you know, land use is crucially important to this question, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I do so. think so. This is a root cause of the whole issue. I think for organic farming in the past 20 years, we have developed quite good in the first 10 years, mm. moving really fast. And after that, we seem to be a bit stagnant. From our certified farm, initially we go up to around uh, up to 149 farms. And then in 2016, and then we drop, and then to now 129 mm -hmm. in this year. So what does it mean is that uh, land is a major issue. Why does it drop in land? Because the land are being retrieved by the landlord, preparing for the metropolitan development in Hong Kong. So uh, if without a really clear direction and picture of the future land use, especially in the new territories, no one would like to invest money in their farming technology. Without the farming technology, the production will remain low, and also it will, attract, it will not attract the young generation to come in because they find that, oh, you are really working too hard, wake up in the five in the morning to harvest the plant, and then you need to do watering and all this. So I would say that before we are doing the marketing, we need to solve the land issue. Once we've got, we got a really secure the land, now we need to train our next generation 
As Daisy said, in HKBU, we have a new agricultural program, training professional. The reason why we are doing that, because we understand that you want the industry to go on without professional. We remain, we will remain really slow. So we hope we have a new bride coming in this year. The first batch of graduate will come into the market, but the situation is not changing. How can you attract them after getting a graduate BSc in agriculture? How can I survive like those farmers because their earning is not good enough? So I think land use is a priority. Then that will come to the finance and marketing. Mm-hmm. If we can do that, I think in the next 10 years, we can change the local scene on mm-hmm. agricultural industry. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Professor Lam, um, we're talking about um, land use, marketing, finance, and um, but uh, could we also talk about technology for a little bit? Well, I mean, what kind of technology do we need to uh, upgrade or or introduce to uh, su- support the local industry? So, uh, well, I, I would say there are two major kinds of technology. Mm. So, one mm-hmm. is for open field. So, uh, if you can just do some <clears throat> simple tent for example okay it's simple and cheap it's already helping the farmer to produce uh, to pre- prevent heavy loss due to heavy rain and and uh, other uh, environmental factors but as, as, as yes this is some kind of investment right so if you can uh, have the longer lease of the land as professor jonathan said then the farmer will be happy to invest otherwise if you have only one or two years lease so what happened if uh, the landlord uh, well, stopped to lend well, land to you? Then all all the money will be gone, right? So and that that is uh, I believe that the uh, government actually has some support for this kind of simple uh, uh, improvement on the open field, and they also have funding to support some simple equipment that can help the farmer say to to uh, to, to level the land, etc. But the other um, kind of uh, technology, I believe, is very important to uh, urban areas like Hong Kong. It, it's the, uh, the urban farming technology. Because we have a lot of roof, for example. So uh, for those uh, um, factories, right? So they have a lot of big area roofs. So if they, they can all be converted into greenhouses that can produce local vegetables. I think they will have market. They will change the scenery of the urban city into have a lot of green things and they can introduce new technologies such as automation, data collections, different kinds of lighting, energy saving, um, uh, air conditioning, etc. So this kind of urban agricultural farming has an urgent need because if we cannot find new land immediately, there's a lot of roof. And also has a cooling effect on, on the city. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, you, you imagine now we are, look at our city. It's just like all the high mansions. But if the high mansions, if you see a lot of greens, green color, actually producing our local food, I mean, it would be very amazing to transform the image of Hong Kong to barely a, a, a stone forest that we set into something that with a lot of um, green concept. I think it's not just for the, for the product, but also for the whole image changing and and the scenario changes. City, city should be green and self-sustaining and etc. Okay, I think we've got uh, Jessica Fong back. Hello? 
Hi. Yes, hi. That, 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 that's a, a better connection. Much better? Yeah, yeah sure. Right. Um, so, what, what, so, yeah, I mean, as someone who works uh, within the business, I mean, uh, do you see a greater scope for urban farming? For sure, particularly in a city like Hong Kong where, you know, land is scarce, space is scarce, the mm. cost is high. We have to look for the alternative. I mean, no doubt if we can have more land where we can grow commercially, where it makes economical sense and we would love to take the land. But also we have the climate issues in Hong Kong. Um, so, you know, the alternative is bringing it indoors and utilize um, underutilized industrial space for them. That's what we're doing. Right. Have, how have you been experiencing with getting young people into the, into the industry? <laughs> um, it, it takes work, um, but it's coming along. Um, but, you know, it's important to, to show there is a future in it. My, um, my and that's what they can get excited. My, I can add a point here. Yesterday, I was in Charter Road, and three young guys come to me. And these three young guys told me that, Professor Wong, I want to have the farming sector. And who they are, who they are? Oh, they are AI professional. Oh. They develop some kind of uh, uh, software. And they said, we can have the farmer. So that gives us the hope. You understand? If we can move to modernization of agriculture, and there's a higher incentive for farmers, I do think we can attract the young generation to come in because they have the being in mind to do the thing. And it's the technology angle that yep. you think they will find attractive um, overcoming the image issue yep. with farming? Let me tell you that. One student told, uh, tell me that when we bring them to the farms in Hong Kong, they said, oh, they are really... Re with a low technology, I want to something, see something high technology. What does it mean is that they want high tech so that they move into the industry to attract them. So I would say that we need to work hard, not just for the land, but also to bring the technology in to attract the younger generation. Mm. Uh, Jessica Fong, obviously uh, technology requires uh, investment. Um, w what do you think of the sort of finance models that are available for the farming industry at the moment? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, we do incorporate technology, and that's probably how we've been able to recruit the younger generation with their fascination and interest in art yeah. in what we do. Um, but, you know, it's still going to take a bit of time to get the right financing for it because it's a really high CapEx-intensive business as you scale up. And then also figuring out at what stage in the context of the business what technology to incorporate so you know you don't break the bank just by incorporating all the technology so it's you do need to be methodical in the process and the good news is you know we're we're in hong kong and we're close to china and there's a lot of very affordable technology that can be incorporated um but it's definitely inevitable to be part of the future of agriculture you i admire you you're actually out there in business in the industry how's it going um, we can't complain. It's going well. Um, it takes work. It takes a lot of work. We're keeping up with our demands and anticipating what's to come in, in this year and the, you know, the next few months. The influx of um, events and people really help with, uh, with the growth of the business. 
Do you think um, there's any more that the government could be doing to support enterprises like yours? For sure. Um, well, I, I've been looking at government grants, <laughs> and I'm thinking about how they can actually help more of the growers and farmers. Reality is all these grants, they require you to have some level of capital to begin with. And not everyone can have access to it, especially the traditional farmers, even if they want to incorporate the technology. So I think improving from the grant level where it, the barrier to entry can be lowered and you know more people can apply for it, then you, know, you bring more people in the industry, um, increase the level of competition, and then you're going to just drive more of the fi financials into, into this because the business will become more attractive. Right. What's the paperwork like? Because that's a common complaint on things like industry, that people say you yeah. probably need to hire someone to fill in the forms to yes. get the grant. Definitely. <laughs> that's a, yeah, we're, Pretty we're, much. Okay. okay. We're gonna have <laughs> well, to, we, we yeah, haven't so. done that, but um, you know, we're, we're getting our investors and our network to help us out on that part. But completely, like if we're, if we're operating a business, you don't really have time to go fill in all the administrative work. <laughs> so that becomes you know, shoved into the, into the back of the pile of your levels of priority. Mm -hmm. um, so the paperwork is quite a bit, but yeah, that, okay. that could help us, that could be reduced. Okay, okay. We'll have to uh, wind this part of the program up in just a moment, but pr perhaps before we do, perhaps if we could ask uh, Professor Lam, um, uh, are you optimistic uh, for the future of the industry? Professor Lam? Uh, I think... I think uh, okay, okay, uh, okay. At that point, uh, well, oh, well, all right. Let's, uh, Jonathan Wong's still with us. So, what do you think? I do think Wong? it's optimistic yeah. because of the environment. Uh -huh. It's favour for this direction. Hong Kong need to move to sustainability and financially. I think there's new venture there. We are talking ESG. A lot of ESG investment looking for ESG project. Agriculture in Hong Kong, especially organic farming, is a ESG project. So let us work hard. I think there's a future for the agriculture in Hong Kong. Mm. Great. Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us uh, on this morning's program. Uh, that was uh, Professor Jonathan Wong, head of the Department of Biology at uh, Hong Kong Baptist University. Thanks also to Jessica Fong, CEO and founder of Common Farms. Uh, also to Professor Lam Hon Ming, uh, Professor of Life Sciences and Director of the Molecular Biotechnology Program at the Chinese University. And uh, earlier we heard from Dr. Daisy Tam, an Associate Professor at the Baptist U with a special interest in food security. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Ninety-five years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. I'm Gilly of Consumer Council. Happy birthday, RTHK, for your 95th anniversary. May I wish you always filled with positive energy, continue to discover and report accurate, impartial and objective consumer news for consumers to shop smartly every day. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned, Stay tuned. with Hong Kong. 
And for the rest of this morning's back chat, uh, we're turning our attention to the cruise industry. That's with the the, the reopening of the cruise terminal uh, last week. Uh, we're joined now in the studio by Jeff Bent, managing director at Worldwide Cruise Terminals, which uh, operates uh, uh, the Hong Kong facility. Uh, uh, Jeff Bent, good morning. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Uh, Gold. Thank you for having me. Okay, you're, you're, Mr. Ross, always a pleasure. You're, you're you're very welcome. So so you've talked about um, a bright future now for the cruise uh, industry that's quite a turnaround isn't it from the from the difficult years that uh, you've been experiencing it really is it's uh it's been like a um like a, a waking from a nightmare <laughs> and now uh it's it's as if it's you know all the clouds have blown by so uh we're we're restarting and uh you know had a ship or two at birth every day for the last week or so. And uh, yeah, things are going great guns. What's the rest of the year look like? The rest of the year uh, looks busy in terms of number of ship calls, but the, uh, the passenger throughput will be less than in the past because it's a smaller ship. So compared to pre-COVID, uh, we should be able to do um, about... Um, three quarters of the number of ship calls, um, half of the number of different cruise brands, um, and maybe a third of the number of passengers. So depending which measure you, you look at, um, it's, um, it's, it's all much better than zero. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it'll, it'll take us a little while to recover. But, um, That's but the it's question. Good. Are we going to get back to a thriving industry again? I think we definitely will, but um, it'll probably be 2026, I think we're looking at. That fits with what you were telling us uh, last time you were on the show, because you said that these cruise companies plan two, three years ahead, and we basically dropped off of their schedules. Yes. Um, So now they're putting together their three-year plans again and deploying their vessels most profitably around the world. So yeah, it's going to take us those the same three years. Yeah, yeah, we should hear their um, deployments for um, twenty twenty six and and the back half of twenty twenty five in the next few months. So um, we're optimistic that um, that Hong Kong changed direction um, early enough that we've caught the latest planning cycle. Right, and I see the one that's coming to be based here. It's foreign-owned, but it's going to be based in Hong Kong. We're going to be the home port. We're going to be the home port. And uh, actually, they'll have a a dual home port strategy. They will also call in Kaohsiung twice a week and pick up passengers there as well, which I like even more because then it's not all just Hong Kong people going out. We'll actually have some, some tourists coming coming into hong Whoa. kong too on the on the ship yeah yeah be still my heart yes okay. some visitors coming in that, yeah. that's good um and these are going to be high-end visitors uh, big money people um let's see uh we'll we'll see how they how they how they market i think in in general um cruise is a bit higher end than um than on average um certainly more than than um than say coach tours uh and then uh similar to aviation maybe but we'll um 
Yeah, we'll see how they how they do in marketing it. I know they're they're really ramping up the marketing engines now, um, bringing in all the travel agents. A number of them were on the ship last weekend. Many more will be coming um, in two weeks from now. Mm. Are we going to have routes up to Japan and back? Not so early. Japan is still kind of tough. They they have um, a lot of COVID restrictions still in place and. Um, the restrictions are not as tight, but there, there are three separate sets of 80-page guidelines that the cruise lines have to go through for each individual port. The, the individual ports are different on top of a sort of national. So it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. And in fact, a, um, we had a sort of surprise uh, last-minute ship call over the weekend because uh, the operator decided it was too difficult to call in Okinawa, uh, couldn't get coaches. Um, too many COVID restrictions, and they switched to Hong Kong instead, kind of last last minute. On the wow, we, we're more liberal than some other places now. Yes, yes. We've moved to the yeah. other end of the spectrum, yeah, which we is have. good. What about down to Singapore via Vietnam and Thailand? Yeah, those are those are quite open. So I'm I'm optimistic that um, that that traffic will will build up. Uh, particularly over over the winter, because of course the ships like to go uh, north in the summer and south in the winter, you know, chase the chase the good weather. So uh, I really hope that uh, Da Nang and Halong Bay will come back on the radar soon. Mm. Uh, it has been pointed out that uh, the, the, the aviation industry is yet to fully recover. I mean, the, some flights are still limited. Uh, f- airfares are high. Is that helping the cruise industry? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a positive. They they um, they benefit by comparison um, for sure. It's a it's a different kind of vacation, and it's only vacation. I guess the the airlines benefit from having business travelers and um, and a lot of sort of visiting relative traffic that are maybe less price sensitive after after a few years. Um, whereas you know, cruise is always an optional leisure activity. So. Um, on the but, other hand, you need uh, flights in and out because you want to be bringing in people to start from Hong Kong. We certainly do. Yeah, we certainly do. So it's um, so it's great to see that aviation is is picking up um, again, ramping up quickly to uh, to help those overseas source markets. And in fact, um, a German operator that was calling in uh, in Kai Tak on uh, Wednesday, our our first call. Um, they said specifically, you know, future deployments depend on airlift um, for for them because they're flying in people from German-speaking markets to come here and get on a cruise. So, so they absolutely must have it. Apart from Germany itself, what else qualifies as a German-speaking market? Austria, a little bit of Switzerland, uh, right. a handful of of Dutch. Yeah. Yeah, the Dutch are very good with languages. Quite, yes. And if they're speaking Plattdeutsch, you know, it's similar mm. to northern Germany there. Then, yeah. mm. There's this sort of image of cruise tours that, you know, a lot of older, elderly, retired people. Is, is that the reality or is it more, more mixed than that? I think it, it depends on the brand that um, there's such a variety um, you know, these, these ships are like floating cities, you know, mm-hmm. like the number of sort of restaurants and things. So, so it depends on the amenities on the ship. And, and some of them are really based on, um, you know, retired couple, um, quiet, civilized, cultural enjoyment, 
um, visit more small towns and stay there longer. And some of them are the enormous ships with the, you know, surfing and bumper cars and, you know, parasailing, you know, all, all that, all that sort of, <laughs> sort of stuff. And they attract a, a younger crowd. And then, of course, there's Disney and they attract, you know, a lot of four and five year olds and they're attending staff, <laughs> parents. <laughs> what about um, staffing? the cruise industry now because a lot of seafarers got stranded overseas during COVID. Has that made the industry less attractive? I think um, the seafarers are are totally over it and very happy to get back to work. And and while, you know, some of them changed to land-based industries like resort hotel or something, I, I think a lot of them um, we're really itching to to get back onto the open sea, and so um, I think maybe it's it's better than um, than people expected. On on land, it's a little bit more difficult <laughs> for for us. Uh, you know, we're also I think facing the same difficulties with uh, staff and and coaches and and uh, and uh, and the rest too. Because people are saying yeah. there aren't enough coach drivers to yep. move large numbers in and out. So. Yes. For a cruise ship, your your big problem is that window for getting all the people off the ship and their luggage and then getting the whole lot new in as short a time as possible. It's absolutely tougher. But, um, you know, the great thing about having a, a home-ported ship calling three times a week for the rest of the year is it gives everybody the confidence to hire. Because, you, you know, up until... You know, a few months ago before this became a, a solid thing, you know, we had sort of scattered calls seasonally throughout the year. And, you know, which travel agency is going to hire staff based on, on that? But, but knowing that, you know, the ship is calling three times a week for the rest of the year, you know, then you can really start the In engines. a way, you're similar to the exhibition industry. You have an ecosystem yeah. that, that needs to back you up. And if the ecosystem has been had the plug pulled, it takes a long time to, for the confidence to come back, to reestablish. Absolutely, and um, I, I'd say, you know, oddly, I, I'd say the sort of the marine side of it, like the the wet and salty people, like they um, are still there, like sort of the tugs and the stevedores and the pilots, because they they work also at the container terminals. Um, but then really the, the, the land side of it, the, the dry people, um, it's been a lot harder, like the, the travel agencies and the coach operators and, and so on. Right. Well, fingers crossed. What more, anything more the government could do? Um, it's all about policy. I, I hope the government focuses more on, on policy. And, um, you, you know, I've spent a lot of time on um, district planning and um, I, I think we don't need to throw money at, at, at the industry, but I think we need to get policy right and planning. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, great. Thanks very much for coming in uh, to talk to us uh, this morning. Uh, that was uh, Jeff Bent, uh, Managing Director at uh, Worldwide Cruise Terminals. Uh, you're listening to RTHK uh, Radio 3. Uh, stay with us. Coming up, we will have a uh, news summary, followed by Brunch with Noreen.